Miss the Viking Wong. Hey, did my brother? Hey, not too bad. We're back in Hong Kong in quarantine. Oh, that's quarantine again. <laughs> <laughs> How many months long, does that make now? It's a good half a year almost. It's the longest quarantine <laughs> in the world. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's <laughs> really the Guinness Book of the Records. <laughs> uh, listen, today our guest is uh, David Anuma, who um, is a third degree black belt and um, also was a, a barrister for around 20 years. Um, he brings some really good foresight. It was a really good conversation, actually, talking about... Um, you know uh, the cases that he's worked on most importantly um, his influences um, and also uh, jiu-jitsu and Filipino martial arts and a little bit about that history as well um, really really good talk um, and so I hope you guys find that interesting as much as we did without further ado Mr. David Anuma okay Mr. David Anuma how are you my brother yeah, I'm very well. Very well, thank you. You guys, good to see you guys. Yeah, man, good, good to, good to, to speak to you, man. Listen, what, 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 what kind of has transpired with regards to like me and Viking doing this podcast is quite a few of our friends, um, the people that we consider friends. Um, we kind of got to know them a little bit better, you know what I mean? And so I want to like more kind of speak to you about you. We're gonna we're gonna touch upon your martial arts and everything, you know. what I mean, uh, eventually. So no, don't worry, man. You get you get time to push the gym. <laughs> no, but um, I just want to talk to you about you, David, man. It's like um, kind of like who were the people who were your influences and stuff like that, because your background is your background as a barrister. So I kind of want to know like what brought you to that point. So let's start from the beginning, man. Let's start from like school, you know, school days, growing up in the eighties. Was it like, or 70s, or 60s? <laughs> okay, well, look, to, to be honest, to, to know about, you know, me, you got to know about, um, you know, my upbringing and my culture. So I was born and raised in, in England, London, England, Golders Green, actually, right in the heart of the Jewish community. Um, but my parents uh, were in, and I, at the time I was born, I was the fourth child. So, but my parents were, uh, I was going to say hardback Nigerians. They are hardback Nigerians, but they came to the con this country uh, 1966 as uh, diplomats for the Nigerian government. So my dad was a diplomat and my, my mother came as his wife. Um, so uh, they experienced living, uh, you know, black people in the UK, you know, right from the outset. Um, but they came as educated people, or at least they, the way that they were raised. They were always raised to believe in education. So um, by the time I was old enough to realize anything about life, as I said, because I had my sister two years older, two years older than that, my brother, two years older than that, my sister. The education thing had already been shoved down their throat, you know, sort of the African way of life. What is the African way of life? Well, you know, you clean up, you tidy up, you make tea in the morning, you know. Those days uh, were very different to now because, you know, my mum would go to the market, she would come back with the chicken that she'd just been killed, and we would pluck the chicken and de-skin the chicken, and you'd see the chicken egg and everything. 
So it was so much more, you know, it was just a way of life, literally. Obviously, we were living here, but we were all raised like this. We all worked in the house. We all studied. We all did whatever we needed to do. And if we misbehaved, we, we were educated. Uh, Nigerian style. You know, you know what I'm saying, eh? You got this. <laughs> um, so, so my point being that by the time... I went to secondary school, obviously, you know, 12. Again, my older brother, he was four years older than me, 16. And we were we went to the same school. But um, I was all, I, I, I didn't really have much choice about um, studying. Now, whilst I Okay, so, you know, so essentially, by the time I came to, you know, secondary school, um, again, education had been pushed towards me, but I was still a terrible student. In fact, when I was in secondary school, I was rubbish. I didn't study. I got in trouble in school. Uh, you know, the amount of time they went to see the head teacher. And it wasn't for being uh, a, a, um, a bad boy, you know, fighting and all that. I just, I just couldn't concentrate, you know. Um, so as a result, I got into lots of trouble, and my exam results were not very good. But I always still knew about studying. I wasn't, my mother, who is still alive and my dad's still alive, fantastic, fantastic woman. She was, she was not prepared <clears throat> to allow me to fail, is the point. She was not prepared to allow me to fail. So, kept on and on and me. And then eventually, you know, I did A-levels, not that great. Eventually got into uh, Polytechnic at the time, one of the top polys in London where they did law. And I did a law degree. Um, um, and then I, I finished that in 1990. And even having said that, even okay, uh, law was okay. My dad is a lawyer. My mum is a lawyer, and she went into education. Then my older my older sister, my older sister, who's passed away 20 years ago now, uh, God bless her. But my older sister, she's a lawyer. Oh, wow. And my brother, he went into medicine. My other sister went into law. So, listen, for those of you who don't know, when, you're, when you come from an African family and you study, ah, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an architect, which is an architect, by the way, right? You're going to be one of those three things. You know, you kind of got no choice. They think that's the only um, thing you can do. Or, or, <laughs> getting into sports is something that is a default. No Nigerian... This is obviously what I know a bit more about. No Nigerian parent has ever um, willingly, from a young age, encouraged their child to be a sports champion. Because if you break your leg, you can't pay your bills. You know, they, they, you know. But then obviously, if you look now, there are some amazing, you know, Niger I'm, not, I'm just talking about what I know. Amazing Nigerian athletes, you know, uh, all around the world who, who have done really well. But what I'm saying is, they weren't pushed into sports. They were all pushed into education. And then, but that's the reason. And also, to be honest, I was never, I told you, I wasn't that great at school. So I wasn't very good with the sciences, biology, science, all this. So there was no way I could be a doctor like my brother. And there was no way I was going to do a history degree or an English degree to do what? What am I going to do? Tell, you know, so I went down the law route uh, as it seemed like it was probably the best option for me. And it, and it worked out that way. So many, many years later, I qualified at the age of um, 25, actually. 20, yeah, 25. 
I qualified as a solicitor, not a barrister, as a, as a solicitor. So mm-hmm. that was Okay. The route to that. Nice, 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 nice. You've been involved. You've been in. Um, I'm not too sure how much you want to talk about this, but we talked about it the other day offline. Now, um, you've been involved in some like seriously high-profile cases within the UK, you know, um, and uh, cases that have been integral with regards to the the changing of of uh, child policies and stuff like that, etc. And uh, you know, even the um, the phone hacking scandal cases as well, which was like. You know, I was reading up about it again the other day, and it's like it, that was. Is I think is when you read up again in hindsight, you understand actually how big it was. You know, and also like a, a newspaper, News of the World, to after 168 years to just shut its doors. You know, <laughs> it's like ah oh, shit, we, we're fucked up here. <laughs> let's let's shut our doors. You know, tell tell us a little bit about that that well, journey. I, I, I will say this. I mean, as as a lawyer, I. You know, as a solicitor, I, I I worked for five years. I spent most of my career pretty much in the same firm, and I became a partner after five years, which is pretty unusual to do it so quick. And um, also, you know, being a man of color as well, it's quite unusual to get to that status quite quickly as well. Um, but being a lawyer has obviously taught me many, many things because, you know, you start off with you know, the simple cases, the ones that you can't really mess up, drunken, disorderly, and minor criminal damage, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, you work your way up until you get to the stage where you can deal with the bigger cases that present themselves. Um, and again, my practice was based in, in North London, so I was a North London-based lawyer. But, you know, you travel around, I've been out to many places as well. Um, but one of the things... I know this might sound obvious, but one of the things that being a lawyer taught me about life was um, nothing is, it's all about information. Because whatever we hear, and it's kind of relevant to now, because, you know, obviously in social media now, there's so many things going on and people saying, is this really the truth? What's the truth? The thing about the law is this, you never know exactly what happened. Um, you have a better chance of knowing the facts if you're in the, in the case because you get mm-hmm. the prosecution papers or if you represent the defendant, you get to speak to them. But you get access, access, he says, because sometimes it's, it's withheld, but you get access to the paperwork, the tapes, the surveillance, the so on and so forth. So whilst you don't get everything, what I'm saying is you get a much bigger or wider picture of the truth of any situation that you're involved in. And, and again, very often it, it, it's not black and white. Now, in, in, so, so as I said, I've been involved in many cases, but you know, that, that News International case was um, absolutely massive beyond belief because there were so many aspects to it. I mean, you, you had you had the aspect where there were those that were actually said to have physically done the hacking, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to prove who did that. And then you had those that were said to have authorized the hacking, mm-hmm. right? And then you had those that were prosecuted for allegedly 
trying to cover up the hacking, right? Yeah. So, the, so that's why I say it was absolutely massive because there were people that were prosecuted within the umbrella of phone hacking who weren't even involved in it, but it was a group became involved later on, right? Yeah. Even down to even down to the driver of one of the main players uh, in the case, the driver was prosecuted um, wrongly, in my opinion, right? Or actually, he was acquitted in the end, right? But he was wrongly prosecuted. But I think he was prosecuted just to put, try to put more pressure on the other people. Because he was, look, I know the butler always knows more, the cook always knows more, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but to suggest that he was actually complicit in what was going on and what had gone on before, bearing in mind that this particular driver hadn't even been working there that long, it was ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? But they still, yeah. you know, charged him because at certain key meetings he was there driving the car, so they prosecuted. But it, uh, it was it was very interesting, and obviously from the from the wider aspect, you know, the whole country became involved about. Uh, became aware of what people were doing and uh, uh, phone hacking and leaks and all this kind of stuff. But all they needed to do was watch Enemy of the State and they would have known <laughs> that this kind of stuff's been going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It, it's stuff, you know, it's, it's um, unfortunately, it's the difference between, um, in this case, this was a private organization doing it as opposed yeah. to MI5. The FBI, CIA, or whatever. Mm. It was, this was mm. a private company doing. So, which was yeah. which was wrong. So anyway, that was a very it was a very interesting case. Lots of people involved in it. A lot of people. A lot of people involved. Yeah, it seemed it was like um, almost to, to use the word to use of a better term, but systemic within the whole. You know, when I was reading reading up about it and and, and just like just going back and just looking at notes and stuff like that, it seemed like it, it was just kind of almost like the. A, a culture in certain divisions and the way it came down through like police corruption and you know um just you know just private investigators being involved oh, yeah. just like some random people man and it's 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 just but everyone kind of like i think it was everyone kind of like knew it was the kind of almost culture to do it it became a kind of little, little bit of a culture you know, you know what um, um just briefly diversifying for a second during this lockdown period, I think a lot of people have probably end up, maybe, but a lot of people have ended up reading more things, looking at documentaries and things they might not ordinarily have looked at. Maybe the driver was boredom, right? Or more time. But, mm. So, you know, I, I just ended up kind of watching, you know, some documentaries of things that I might not necessarily have watched before. But one of the things that came out of looking at this kind of stuff and one of the things that is is both easy and difficult to understand, and it's culture. Mm -hmm. And not culture like I'm Nigerian, you're French, you're German. I'm talking about culture mm -hmm. of the um, area that you're in, of your life that you're involved in. So if I said, oh, jujitsu lifestyle, everybody knows. You know, we know these subtle things, fish, bum, mm -hmm. cauliflower. It, Everybody knows that thing, going for some asset. Everybody knows this whole thing. But 
in the in the newspaper world, which I don't know anything about, but I, I'm sorry, I've been watching some documentaries. There's the whole culture, isn't it? It's the, it's the yeah. thing of what's accepted and what isn't. So, well, I made references to this because the other day, by coincidence, I happened to see. I think my, my wife was watching on TV um, something to do with Lady Diana. Uh, and, and it just went from one documentary into another document. And it was all about, oh, the royal family, this and that and that and this. But then it kept talking about all oh, the agreements with the press. You know, they agreed to leave Harry and, you know, and his brother alone between this period and this period after Diana died. And then you started to get a sense of, oh, okay, there's all these unwritten rules of things that they will do yeah. and they won't do, which is obvious to them because they live in it. So they know it. But when you, so when you kind of take that and then you bring it back into this news international thing that we're talking about and you're saying um, systemic, well, there was a culture of what was already acceptable. In terms of, you know, yeah. the paparazzi hiding around the corner, you know what I mean? Long telephones on them. There was already an accepted culture. But I, but I think that this case showed that they went over and above, you know, that norm, that culture. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. hacking, yeah. hacking dead people's, allegedly hacking dead people's um, voicemail messages. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 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 Wrong. Wrong to, to put it to put no, it mildly wrong. No sanctity there. You know what I mean? So how can yeah. I sell some newspapers off of this? You know? Well, that that is always well. Kind of, I think nothing's kind of changed with regards to actually the, you know, with regards to actually, you know, what the target is. The target is to sell more news, sell more newspapers, and I think if anything, it's kind of like ramped up a little bit more because now there is more access to individuals via different mediums now, rather than just the newspaper, you know, social media, etc., TV, Sky, whatever. You know, there's more, there's, there's more, you know, there, there are more avenues. For us to be influenced, you know, so then you know we have to take control with regards to actually what we filter and what we read, and you know, and sometimes just like take a step back and allow the process to kind of like go for a few days, and then actually kind of like take and, and you know disseminate the truth from from what we've been seeing over the last whatever four or five days, whatever it is, you know. Um, so tell tell us about the Victoria Columbia case. Because uh, that that was that's 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 a. Uh, that was a heavy yeah, one. that's probably that's probably the worst case that I've ever dealt with in my life. Um, mm. So, for those that want to look it up, Victoria Columbia case C L A C L I M B I E. So th this was a case essentially where a a couple um, in inverted commas had. A young girl, and they were caring for her. So, the 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 natural mother of this girl was not in this country, and she had kind of been given to the chief defendant in this case to look after. And she promised to look after her and you know raise her up with a better future in the UK, and that plainly didn't happen. Right, so she was the guardian for that child. And along, along the way, she met um, the male defendant. Um, and she was African, 
by descent. And he was, uh, I think he was a British-born West Indian. I can't remember if he was Jamaican or not. I think he was British-born West Indian. And they met. Um, and it would be fair and completely accurate to say that out of the two of them, she was the dominant person and he was just like a follower. Do you know what I mean? He was a, a just kind of meat guy who just sort of did what he was asked, like a pushover. Because within a short space of time of them meeting, she ended up living with him in his flat. You know, um, now in essence, what happened was, and which isn't in dispute, is that this girl, very young girl, was um, completely mistreated. Um, in almost, almost the worst possible way. Um, and she eventually ended up dying because of the way she was treated. Um, she was uh, left to sleep in the bath every night. Cold, empty bath, but empty bath in the night. Um, she was beaten several times. Um, that's not what killed her, but she was beaten several times. Um, and she wasn't fed, she wasn't looked after at all, you know, completely mistreated. Um, so this case raised several issues because there had been contact with social services during that time period, right, during the relevant time period, but by hook or by crook or whatever, people didn't do their job as it came out. They didn't follow up, so they missed all the signs that there was a girl in yeah. danger here, right? Mm. Um, and like I say, she she eventually she eventually died. Now, um, again, like I, I said to you, that when you do criminal cases and you're involved in them directly, you get to see and hear more of the facts than the general public will see. And in this particular, and in every case that you deal with, especially, I mean, no, I've dealt with a lot of murder cases over the years, I have, that's it. And in murder cases, people die in different ways. But you always get autopsy photographs, and you always get photographs taken in the scene. Um, and so, you know, for the viewers, it's pretty graphic, but you know, you're not going to see it. But, you know, we, we've got, I got given the photographs of how she was found. Well, I, well no, that, that's not strictly true, because she wasn't found Give me a minute, give me a minute, give me two seconds. Yeah, right, go. Are you ready? Yeah, okay. good, 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 good. So anyway, um, like I said, we, we, you know, you, we saw the pictures of how she was treated, and that stayed with me forever. You know, you know, mm. I, listen, I'm a big man. I've come through there, I've dealt with cases. I processed it. You know what I mean? I don't have sleepless nights over it. But it's something I'll never, ever, ever forget. You know? Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and the, the, the wickedness, the wickedness to do something like that over a period of time. Mm. But, you know, it's, um, it, it, it shows that it happens. And, you know, it, it, it does happen. I think, if I'm correct, I think I saw yesterday in the news there was another African lady who got convicted for 11 years of treat assaults and stuff on three or four kids akin to slavery. She's getting kids over on false passports and making them work in a house and mistreating them. And 
I, you know, in some ways it hasn't changed. You know, it happens, you know. Um, wickedness is out there, you know. But I think we need to, I think yeah. people need to know about these things. And the reason why I say that is that it's not that you want it on the forefront of your mind. But mm. if you don't know that it happened, you, you, you can't even begin to see any signs. It's not something that will ever, ever cross your mind. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, without going into it, really, but if you're a parent, you don't really know much about kids, you know, generally, until you become a parent. And then when you become a parent, you, and then you enter the world of kids, then you, then, and then you, then you start to learn about different kind of boundaries, the boundaries for your kid, the boundaries for another kid, and so on and so forth. And then, uh, but then you, you sort of have to keep, you keep your eyes open. And then sometimes you can be in a tricky situation like it, that kid that day is really misbehaving and, and the dad grabs him like, didn't I tell you not to? And then, and then you look and it's like, you kind of almost have to form a judgment. They're like, is it excessive? Is it not excessive? Is it any of my? Is it any of my business? You know, yeah. it's. I'm, just, I'm not offering any answers. I'm just saying that it's 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 um just one of those things that makes makes you more aware or should make you, you know, more aware of life because there are many facets mm. to it. But yeah, anyway, I didn't want to come over all uh, macabre and dark. It's it was part of the job that I did. There were many other. Uh, things that I did that were, you know, much more pleasant and helpful, but, you know, these things, they happen and it's, it's, it's part of life, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that was, um, that was a, that was a tough one, man. So talk about how it, how it changed or, you know, the kind of child protection. Um, well, this country did, how, yeah, how... I mean, this, this country did what it's famous for and conducted a long ass inquiry. You know, everything's an inquiry. <laughs> yeah, inquiry. Millions of pounds head by this person, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, look, they, there were lots, there were lots of mistakes. Lots of mistakes. It mm. caused, um, and there was another one as well, Baby P, which happened. Um, but yeah, oh, yeah. but yeah, it caused yeah. all the social services to have to rewrite their manual, their procedures, you know, be more vigorous in terms of how they do their stuff. Is are they perfect now? But did it cause them to do it? Um, you know, I mean, dare 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 I say, it, it in the social work world, it kind of had the same sort of effect that George Floyd is having right now in terms of, you know, people looking at policies and should we allow Neil? Ne it was it was as bad. You know, yeah, yeah, this, yeah. this kid yeah. got killed on your watch. You know. And, you know, so, so I can't tell you, you know, exactly what changes they made. Um, but yes, the whole system was, you know, radicalized. Um, but, you know, on a slightly different note, the problem with um, social work, which a lot of people don't realize, is that it's one of those jobs where they are undervalued, um, poorly motivated, mostly because they're overworked. See? Yeah. So a lot of things slip through the crack as a result of this kind of stuff. It's not, you know, you could say the same about nurses and, you know, I mean, firemen and all that kind of stuff. You could say the same thing. 
Um, but it probably, it still is the same with, with you know, social services and social workers. Now, as much as some of them really trying to do good, they're overworked, underpaid. And, you know, when, you're, when, you, when you have a job which involves um, compassion, a lot of compassion, yeah. right? And, but you're feeling crap yourself because you're feeling all these negative things. One might say it might be a bit difficult to do your job. But, yeah. but there you go. Okay, man. Oh, <clears throat> let's change subject a little bit. Let's um, jump into Filipino martial arts. You know, your passion, man. <laughs> would, it, would, I, would I be right, uh, correct in saying that's, that's, you know, from a, or from a martial arts perspective, that is your number one passion or that's the, 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 the driving force behind, behind you? You know, I've been asked this question kind of many times. Oh, gosh, oh, well, damn. No, no, I should no. revise my questions, man. <laughs> normally, people probably ask me and they say, what's your favourite martial art? And my answer is this. Um, not favourite. I don't want, no, no, not favourite. It's, it's the, the driving force behind it. Okay. So, the Filipino martial art, generally, and certainly in the way that I've been taught, is the, is, is the most diverse, right? So you can never get bored, right? So the, the, I've, I have trained in many systems of the Filipino martial art, but the, ma the major umbrella system as taught by um, Guru Dan and Asanto, who everybody knows. There are 12 subsections to the system from a single weapon all the way to what they call the spiritual side, where, you know, prayers and, and meditation and so on and so forth. So there are 12 subset, subsections. So a lot of it, the majority of it is weaponry, all different types of weaponry. Um, and then you have the empty hand aspects as well, which they call, you have Palantukan, which is what they call, it's called Filipino boxing, Palantukan. But it's not regular boxing because it's Filipino boxing in which they can punch, knee, kick, elbow, and slap, right? Um, and, and so you have that aspect. And then you have another aspect which they call Dumog. Um, and Dumog is Filipino uh, grappling, okay? Um, and it's really the way that they off-balance you when you're standing whilst they're hitting you, right? And sweeps and take you down to the floor. And then they have, they definitely do have a locking system on the floor and a control system. Um, but again, it's still based upon, you know, uh, it's still based upon, they won't go down to the floor. They can put you in an armbar, but they'll be putting you in an armbar whilst they might be stabbing you in the neck, as opposed to, mm. and they will break the arm as opposed to putting you in a compliant situation. And obviously I understand in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, we can do those horrible things too. The point I'm making though is that if you take someone down, the idea is you would go brat as opposed to hold and control. It's it's more you know violent from that aspect. Um, so it has so many facets to it that if you if you even if you're a poor student of the Filipino martial arts, and there are many, there are many, you will still you will still get an understanding that. There's a left hand and there's a right hand. There's a weapon here, there's a weapon here. I can punch me and elbow. I can take to the floor and so on and so forth. So it offers a lot. It's almost, it's almost like a, 
a, a real mixed martial art. And, and, and why I use the term mixed, a real mixed martial art, is because to me, a true martial art is one that mm. is derived from or used in battle. So MMA in the ring, yes, it is mixed martial arts because everyone uses that term martial, right? But in, in its current form, people don't. That's not what was used in battle, you know what I mean? And in battle and in wars, the first thing you had to learn was how to use a weapon, right? That's why sometimes, you know, when you see these uh, kids on the street of Afghanistan, you know what I mean? What are they holding, MK16s or 47s, AK-47s? Because they're not teaching them how to kickbox. They don't shoot somebody, right? Because that's what war is about, right? So, so what I like about it is from day one, you learn, start learning with a weapon, right? Whereas if you look at styles like, um, you know, other traditional styles, karate, taekwondo, um, they don't teach you any weapons until you're black belt. They said, now you're ready to hold a weapon. But again, like I said, if you were preparing for war, that kid who needed, depending on how far back in time you go, that kid needed to learn how to hunt, you know what I mean? You know, a knife, you know, chasing and cutting open the meat and so on. So um, it's steeped in a long history of, it, it's, it's, it's like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the sense that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is very real, right? You, you can't really train it without training it. You've got to roll, right? You have to roll. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Filipino martial arts, at least in its history, was based on battle. Battle was fighting this word. The one who was the survivor told you what worked. <laughs> you know what I mean? How do you know it worked? I'm still alive, right? So this tended to work. Um, so, yeah, I, so I love the fact that you can research it, you can train it, and it just gives you so many different attributes, attributes which I've taken and used, you know, in other martial arts all the time. So that's what I love. That's what excites me about it. It's really real, real good fun. Um, but, you know, is it the best martial art in the world? Well, no single one is, you know, and also it, mm. it isn't, um, <clears throat> it, it, it's, it's not one style, it's something that has evolved over the years. Like the Filipino martial arts has a massive Spanish influence, okay? Um, and again, the, the Filipinos, they were basically taken all over the world to fight. They used to just come pick them up, collect them, don't know how it happened, but they just ended up all over the world fighting battles in different places. Um, and, and, and each place they went, they kind of collected another influence, another weapon, another, another kind of way of fighting. Um, so, yeah, but that's why I like it so much, because it's, it's so diverse and it offers many attributes, you know. Yeah, it's nice. I, I like, I like the, 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 the beauty of the, uh, the weapons, though. It's, they're, they're, they're gorgeous, man. They've got to be probably one of the, the most good-looking weapons in the world. <laughs> it swords and the knives and everything. It's like, I, I just like, um, there is some some attention to detail. I know there's a lot of history behind it of what they put on their weapons and the carvings and stuff like that. You know, that that's that's absolutely amazing. So back in, so back in, um, 
in a, oh gosh, my, in the nineties, I did the European Championships actually, stick fighting oh. championships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did it in Balamina, Northern Ireland, dude. That's got to be the most tiring thing I've ever done in my whole entire life. So um, it was with um, I think Pat yeah. O'Malley. Um, yeah, it's all the, all the old school lot from from Bob Bob Breen's. And yeah, I can't remember how long the rounds were. All I remember, man. Yeah, it's about three minutes or something like that. But my lungs were like fire, fire. There's no rest. There's no rest. It's like all you hear. But it it was amazing, and I think it's one of one of the things that I've done. I've in, in jiu-jitsu, I've competed and, and felt a similar feeling, but not at that same level because it was just so aerobic. Um, but it's one of the things that you know that really stuck in my head that you need a certain level of you have to have a certain level of cardio to to, to be able to output so much so quickly. Yeah. You know, for for such a period it's period of time. Funny because actually, in the Filipino martial the one so the one that many I never formally competed in a stick fighting tournament. Mm. Uh, and that was because it wasn't for me. When I say it wasn't for me, um, the, the competition side, um, how can I put it? The competition side is not as um, exciting to me as the real side mm. because there's not... At the highest level, you can block, but there's no real blocking. It's more who can hit the most in the time. Yeah, yeah. You've got two people going, you'll hit me, and then the referee's going to decide who hit the most. Mm. Whereas the way I was trained, which was, you know, very well by initially, certainly by you know by Master Breen, if you didn't block, you felt bang. You know what I mean? You had to, mm. your blocking skills got really good. Block, 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 and then you hit, block. But it's the armor, when you got the armor on and so on and so forth. So so that side never really attracted to me. But my students, I trained, but I did lots and lots. It's the rugby versus American football yeah. type, of, <laughs> type of scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you can take the hit because you've got the armor on. But what do you call it in rugby? Like, go, uh, seal to the side a little yeah. bit. <laughs> and then, and, what I did do, which is probably worse, I did do some um, low armor stuff. So you just literally had a helmet mm. and the gloves with a real stick. That was probably not the yeah. wisest thing to do. Um, I remember getting hit on my elbow one time. My my elbow came up like a chest on my on my arm, just like mm. massive, you know. Um, and so, and then we we. As time went on, we transferred to padded sticks. So you'd use padded sticks mm. and no helmet. Again, very painful when you, when you got hit. Um, yeah. And my my students uh, have done very well in, in the competitive arena, you know, from world champions, European champions, British champions, national champions, all that kind mm. of stuff. So, it, so, and we did lots and lots of rounds and our training. And it's just that for me, I had no desire to go and compete for any effort that can, it just yeah. wasn't for me but um but it's actually done very well for for my students notice i didn't say that they've done very well they have but it's actually competition mm. side 
has done very well, or some students actually brought them out because they'd not competed in anything before, you see? So that fact that they were able to compete in that is still a competition. You have to get ready, as you said, cardio, you're going to fight a guy, you might get hurt, will I win, will I lose? You know, the thing that competing does that many people who don't compete don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk Talk to me about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, man. Talk to me about, you know, your third degree, buddy. Yeah. Ta-da! <laughs> Talk to me about your jiu-jitsu journey, you know, the beginnings. Yeah, I mean... Uh, Was that first day like... You know, like, uh, when... thing is, <clears throat> I got... I think like most of the older... Gener- older jiu-jitsu generation in the UK, we all did... Don't know who you're talking about. Us. I don't know who you're talking most of us have done something before some kind of martial art before Mm. right i I, i'm quite happy to be told that i'm wrong but i don't know of any you know original you know uk black belt in the top 50 you know top 50 first 50 black belts who had done something before they Mm. came to jiu-jitsu right so if I remember correctly, I started jiu-jitsu at 29 or 30, right? And by that time, I already had black belt in kickboxing. I'd been doing Wing Chun since I was 16. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I had started the Filipino martial arts. So, you know, it, 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 and I came from the, the school of thought where nobody taking me to the ground. Are you mad? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because if you do, by the time you come, put me, yeah. I would have punched you several times in the mouth. And you know, the level, the level of ignorance about the ground and that, and wrestling, you know, that close range was high. When I was in university, yeah. between 1986 and 1990, I had a guy. Um, Ray, I think Ray Sylvester. And he was his, he was a big bad guy. And he lived in High Wycombe and he was part of the British judo team. Uh-huh. And if there was ever an opportunity to learn and train with a guy and learn something new, that was the one. I didn't know. Mm. Oh, I'm not interested in it. Let me show you. Let me show you my Wing Chun. Let me show you. Listen, if that guy had grabbed hold of me, we would have dead, right? He, he, I mean, one throw on the floor, he would have killed me, you know? So the level of ignorance to grappling and that kind of stuff was very high. So when I joined yeah. Guru Bob Green's Academy in 1996, April 96, I joined for one purpose. It was just to learn stick fighting. I had done some before, in 1990, 1992, through Nino Bernardo, who's a famous Wing Chun guy, who at that stage, at yeah, yeah, that yeah. stage, had been promoted to an apprentice instructor in Filipino martial arts mm-hmm. under Guru Dan in Asanta. Mm-hmm. But eventually, he gave all the certificates back because, as I understand it, Wong Chong Long, who was now since passed, who was his teacher, also a teacher of Bruce Lee, told him, you need to commit to one or to the other, so he gave up. So I learned, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I understand that, right? So 
if I'm mm. wrong and anyone listening, don't get upset. That's how I remember it. That's how I understood it. So, so, um, so I was learning basic stick, single stick, double stick. Nothing, I was not amazing, but I knew how to string a stick around. Yeah. So it, it interested me. So I decided I wanted to go and learn there. So when I joined the academy, um, they had a full program of basically, let's call it generically, kick tie boxing, stick work. Mm-hmm. And they did do some grappling, right? And obviously, mm-hmm. Bruce Lee, Jeet Kune Do, all this kind of, all kind of mixed together and stuff. So I got fully into the program pretty quick. And, oh, this is exciting. This is nice to learn something new again, right? Um, and then I learned my first grappling from the most unlikely source. And that was from Guru Bob himself, Bob Green. The reason why I say the most unlikely source, at the time that I met him, he used to walk like this. Because yeah. he had crumbling hips, right? Mm. Um, and so there were so many things he couldn't do, but it never stopped him, right? And he was the only one who was actually doing a move about spinning, put you on the floor, cut down, Juju Katami. You know what I mean? Esther Katami, you'd have you here. Well, I learned those terms from him. He'd have you in a lock, wrench your arm out. So we learned. I won't even call them the basics of grappling, but my introduction to the floor came from him, from a guy with dodgy hips. Um, and then because, um, you know, he was a pioneer in many, many ways, he used to bring guys in that nobody's ever heard of, Mark Fan, Mark Fan. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you, you know, Mark Fan, but he's forced to bring that, but Gino, fully qualified in Kali and, and, and he was a ground, he was known as a grounder. And then all these, he would bring all these guys in who were experts. And then, then the shadows yeah. started to come. And then later, later yeah. on, Eric Paulson came on the scene with do that. So we got, in fact, Chris Halter, who everybody knows, right? I My first mm. role as a black belt, sorry, with a black belt, was with him in 1997, maybe. He came to do a seminar. And, and I, what I remember, I didn't know anything anyway, but what I do know is he break danced <laughs> on me. Literally, he break danced on me. Spinning, jumping, I'm looking for this guy. He's run, I mean, it was magic. Um, but even prior to that, at the academy, um, Group Bob brought somebody along, and I don't remember who it was, but there was a girl he brought. One girl, you know, what is she? Nine stone, eight stone, you know, what do I know? And we had to, to roll. Now, I didn't know very much, but I was still a martial artist and I was strong. And the girl messed me up, basically. I'm tapping all over mm-hmm. the place. Tap on my arm by a choke on the back, and I'm like, wow, right? Um, and again, that was the sort of thing that completely or introduced me to the effectiveness of it. No, it wasn't UFC. I worked. UFC was not an influence for me. It wasn't. It wasn't an influence for me. It was something I, because I wasn't interested in that. But this, what this girl did to me is like, wow, she controlled me like that. I need to learn. You know, was more. this with a gi or without um, so a gi back, back, back in that time? Oh, yeah, no. In that time, it was okay. no gi. We never used any. No, it was without a gi. I remember some people had occasionally had a jacket. You know, but it was all without gear. It was all, you know, like <clears throat> basic arm bars. And, and in fact, when I took my black belt test, in Guru Bob, 
in October of 1997. We had a grappling element to it. And I remember because for the few months before, I went off to a guy who I still know, Sebastian Mustafa. He was a student there already. And he knew some grappling, you know. That's it, well, he knew some grappling, right? And he, I, he taught me grappling. So we would grapple together and he taught me arm bars and how to roll and move around and all this kind of stuff. Because we, we, we had, as part of our black belt test, we had to grapple. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, and then in 1998, um, I went to America for the first time with Guru Bobby he took me, he was going to teach some seminars out there. That was the, probably the best time I've ever had in America. Why? First time I'd been, I, because I was with him, it was like an all access pass. We were going to lunch, yeah. dinner with Guru Dan in the center. Guru Dan was going to train in the Machados. We went together, training in the same class. Guru Dan's there training with the Machados. I'm training. We had dinner, he's there, and all access pass. You know, met all the Machado brothers, everybody, you know. This was like, wow, this is this is amazing. Um, and then I sort of became hooked. I thought, wow, this is good. So um, obviously, I, I was living here and I came back to the UK. But at one point, you know, like the early, the late 90s, I, I think, you know, I mean, who cares anyway? Because it doesn't matter. But I think at that point, certainly, in my circle and what I knew, I was like one of the best grapplers out there. With the, you know what I mean? I trained some grappling with these guys. Um, and then uh, John Machado was doing, had a, built up a seminar tour in Europe. And mm -hmm. when he came in 99, I traveled with him. He, I think Andy Norman brought him, but I traveled with him for two weeks. They traveled to Italy. And it was around the country. So I managed to get time off and I traveled with him, going to the seminars, blah, blah, blah. But, and then at the end of that two weeks, uh, I think he probably felt a bit sorry for me. And then, and then I, got, I got blue belt, right? I'll give my blue belt. Um, and then I was, I was tested a little bit because he told me this is what you need to do for the basic syllabus, this, that, this week. But mm -hmm. I, I mean, no way was I a blue belt at the skill level of the blue belt? No way, absolutely. Night and day. But I knew how to grapple, if that makes sense. And I came back, and alongside that, because of traveling to America, I got introduced to Sensei Eric Paulson, who was you know, very active at that time, and doing a lot of you know, his, his system combat submission wrestling. So every time I went back to America to train with Guru Dan and Asanto on his instructor camps, the camps would be like this. You'd go for about a week or 10 days. And the camps would run in the morning and the afternoon and the kind of early and later. And then in the middle, John Jack Machado would do the jiu You'd sign up, obviously paid, to do the jiu-jitsu training with John Jack Machado. Mm -hmm. And this was every year that we went. So it's great. I rolled with John Jack Machado. Him and his one hand getting my ass, you know, murdered. You know, by this guy, he was a really lovely guy, really, really, really lovely guy, highly skilled. And, you know, and there'll be some of the camps, Rick Young would be there, you know what I mean? Training on the match, rolling with Machado mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So, um, so that was good. But then from about, but again, you've got to remember, I say you've got to remember, I qualified as a solicitor in 1993. So this was my job, do you know what I mean? I was working full time. And also in the early days, 
you know, you you always have to put the hours in, don't you? You know what I mean? Not that it ever stops. You have to put yeah. work in. So I would use my holidays to go and travel, right? And it's not that way. Yeah. So, and there was no, really, there was no jiu-jitsu schools here. Or anything. So it's not like I was going to jiu-jitsu class five times a week. There was not. I was my own teacher just doing whatever I could do. So eventually, I kind of gave it up because nobody else even had a gi, let alone wanted to grapple, had mats. Um, and I would do my bits and pieces at the academy. So mainly it was no gi with the little knowledge that I had. And then the next big change was when I became aware that Roger Brookin, Professor Roger Brookin, was teaching at Seymour Place in London, and that was um, late 2002. And I went to uh, join his school, and although you may recall that in October 2003, they had the first London Open. Um, but that was his, his competition, the first London. It wasn't the first judicial competition, but it was one of the first. But you, you know, you were involved in both. First one was in um, uh, Kensington Sports Centre in 2000. Yeah. In well, I, I didn't even know about any of those things then. It's a bit too. <laughs> no, four, four, mate. It's four. It, it was four. It's so it's quite funny actually because because Rick Young, uh, Rick Young competed. Rick Young won the weight category two two above me. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's a uh, it's funny. Us yellow belts. <laughs> but it's funny you should mention about geese because. Yeah, it's like when we used to do jiu-jitsu back then, it's like because my, I, I came from a judo background into okay. jiu-jitsu. So I did Thai boxing and stuff, and Philippine martial arts, etc., traditional jiu-jitsu, whatever. But my my path to, to BJJ was like through through judo in the same building, and etc. Um, but yeah, you know, the majority of us, I remember when uh, Sheikh Tahoon came over as well, you know, we all had judo keys. We didn't have jiu-jitsu keys at the time. You know, and it, it was, I can't even, I couldn't even tell you when it changed, but it changed, I think when the first time I went to Brazil was 2000, well around about 2000 it changed, I think I got first Jiu Jitsu, 2000, 2001, um, and then when I went to Brazil 2001, then yeah, man, it just, you know, came back, and that was it. <laughs> and even for yeah, me, it, in all it, that it, time, in all that time, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu didn't, when I say it didn't mean anything, just got to remember that mm. it was exciting it was interesting but it was it was i'm full-blown living my life working i really was you know single man working you know criminal law mm. which is 24 7 you know going off yeah. that was my mate that was my job that was my life working too hard you know doing that and all the other martial arts stuff was was along the way you know um, continued training, I'd go off and do camps and things like that, you know. So, and you know, I would teach people privately and stuff like that. But I, I didn't, what, what I'm really saying is, I, I didn't really have the traditional uh, uh, oh, I'm going training three times a week at this club. Mm. But mm -hmm. I never really had that, you know. Um, yeah. and, and I think, to be honest, that's part of what made me grow and develop because um, 
it made me hungry to learn and also I went to learn. I, 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 was, I was lucky because I was working and I was single and I had a good job and I had some money. I was able to pick where I wanted to go, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now go to yeah. America and I'm going to train in the camp for two weeks at food that got the books, the knowledge, and I studied. And I come back with information, you know what I mean? Even throughout the time period that I was training at the Guru Bob at the academy, mm. he would go, he was all over the world teaching seminars with me. With yeah. me. When I say with me, I used to pay my own way. He was graceful and let me come. I pay my own way and travel with him. I was his rookie, basically. Mm. I was the one getting beaten up, hands on, hands on, hands on, feeling his energy, feeling, learning, learning, which you, you know, much more than you get in the class. So I did go to classes and all that, but I'm saying my learning was because I traveled with him. Oh, I'm going to teach in France this weekend. Can I come? Yeah. Done. Friday to Sunday, three days of training with this guy, you know? So in my, and, and that, spilled right over into my jiu-jitsu career. So in my jiu-jitsu career, mm. I've trained with a who's who, who's who list of, of people. Um, mm. Many of them who have come into this very same room where I'm sitting right now at the back of my house, right? Um, you know, because I learned, if you ask. If you don't ask, you don't get. And I've asked them, you know, as a fan, I had the head of GFT, Gino Cesar Pereira training here, Adolfo Vieira, Dele, you name it. Mm. Um, and, and I asked and they came and I, you know, I trained and I learned stuff from these guys, which was, you know, truly amazing because I, as I said, I didn't have the, um, you know, going to class four or five times a week, like we do now have available in, in yeah. the academy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so I grew up from that culture of private seminar, you know what I mean? Work, workshops, private, hands-on personalizing my game, you know? Um, I mean, like, it's quite interesting because at the moment in the jiu-jitsu world right now, have you heard of the Tackett mm. Brothers? The yeah, Tackett you got the Tackett Brothers and is it the Ta William Tackett and... Uh, yes, Will. Mm. Yeah, they, they are based, they are part of the Checkmate team in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and they're taking the storm right now, doing really well. And the head instructor is Rodrigo Brukutu Cabral. And Brukutu taught me privately for two years here before he got deported back to Brazil when he was a youngster. He was still a rounder, right? Mm -hmm. And Roger Brookingham managed to get him over and he came and he was training here, teaching at Seymour Place and stuff like that. And then he was teaching me privately every week. He came and taught me every week and we trained. And now it's great to see him, his fourth degree black belt now, he's got world, you know, top class guys in his gym, doing really well. And it's funny because things don't come overnight, you know what I mean? You know, you've got to put in the hardware and the time and all this kind yeah. of stuff. But it's just like, I'm just saying it's interesting. It's like, okay, yeah. Spent a long time, you know, training with this guy, you know, learning from him. And, you know, years later, he's doing his own stuff really well. So it's nice. I messaged him the other day, so he's, he's, he's doing really good. But yeah, so uh, I, I think, um, but I've always had a hunger to learn, Jude. This is the thing. I've never. I'm always interested in, in learning, um, and I think, you know, I think that a lot of people don't have that hunger these days. I feel that they don't have that hunger. They got a hunger to get. They want to get better, but they don't necessarily want to learn. Does that Does that make sense? 
Yeah, the journey, the journey, because the journey is tough. Well, maybe not, the, the easy, things are so, so readily uh, available nowadays, yeah. as you said. You know, it's a very, uh, according to you, unconventional method of acquiring the skills. And now it's so easy. You can go to this gym and that gym and that, so you don't have to work for it anymore. But I think you know everyone's got their own uh, journey, and it's. Uh, I think I think that's probably part part of the um, what's the word illusion though, because at the end of the day, I think in order to achieve the things that you still need to achieve, the grassroots or core of what you have to do still remains the same. So it doesn't. Yes, you can. You know, you can go and look on YouTube. You can. You have way more. Um, you know, uh, influences out there with regards to actually what you can pick up is more readily available. But in order to still achieve what you need to achieve, hard work. <laughs> that hard work still has to be done. It still has to be done. You can't you can't get away from it. If you got the th if you got the hunger or the thirst for knowledge, you still have to sit down. You still have to re you know you still have to read. You still have to research. You still have to ask the questions. You still have to go out. You still have to speak to the right people. It still needs to be done the same. You know, and I think you know the illusion that it's it's easier is probably a little bit more of a of a, of a hindrance because when people get disappointed that they haven't done or or have the success that they should have that they think they should be due then I think it's a much harder it's a much bigger fall you know whereas back in the day you didn't have it so you had to travel two hours to go there you had to travel to this country to compete you had to go in there so the reward system was a lot greater in yourself because you actually knew it took a lot more work or you know seemingly took a lot more work to get things done a lot a little bit more sacrifice but you know you see that it's, uh, yeah when it comes to martial arts and training and teaching obviously Christian and jiu-jitsu as well but you see i i i have um my view is that um there are a lot of students that don't know Majority of students don't know how to learn. Mm. And the majority of teachers don't know how to teach. Mm. Um, and speaking about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu specifically, the reason why I say it is, normally what happens is you get your black belt. And now I'm at your school, mm. right? And then now you start to teach, and we know that many people teach before then, right? But then you start to teach, mm -hmm. and then what do you do? You normally teach the way that you were taught, right? Um, adding in your own character, personality, and influences, right? And then for many black belts, again, this is my opinion, this is where the learning the actual learning stops. It now just becomes oh, time spent on the mat training, maybe competing, doing this and that. The actual learning, show me this, how do I improve that, stops or radically decreases. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I've, listen, um, there was a point in my life where, before I opened my school, that I was teaching seminars, when I say all around the world, I mean, around the world, you know, a lot in Europe, out of Canada, America, you know. And I would go to gyms where 
they were real good, tough black belts. A lot of good students. Everyone is training jujitsu. But some of their basic knowledge was really missing. Right? And there were lots of gaps. And, and, and part of the reason why their basic knowledge was missing is basically is because they didn't have it and they hadn't filled the gap. But let me just take this a little bit further. I got my black belt January 2010, right? At that point, uh, I'd been training Jiu-Jitsu maybe 12 years at that time, but still then it wasn't 12 years and five days a week, you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But still 12 years, you've got to count the time you started. You can't, oh, I didn't train, I'd have broken leg for six years. You've been training Jiu-Jitsu, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but the truth was, uh, the truth was, guys, I got to 2010, 2011, before 2011, and I realized that despite having won the European Championship three times at that stage, I won a classic round and won a prep. The truth was, I did not know how to keep them out and how to submit anyone from them out. I did not know how to keep the back and submit you from the back. I did not know how to escape from side control, right? Mm. There was clearing holes like bullet holes, back, 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 because I was honest with myself, right? I didn't know how to do these things, right? And it was like, okay, now, because you see, up until I got my black belt, I was a lawyer, I was a martial artist, a Filipino, I had all my qualifications and all this other stuff. Now I'm black belt in jiu-jitsu. So I can't say I'm not a jiu-jitsu guy anymore. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because I never called myself a jiu-jitsu guy because I'm a martial artist, right? So mm. I didn't call myself that. And I, and, I, and I thought to myself, I need to know how to do these things. Berobrolo wasn't around there, but it wasn't like Berobrolo and all these I need to know how to do the basics because I didn't know. Yeah. So I went on a mission for three, four years going to the black belts that I felt could help me and that I could get hold of to learn how to do these things and build up a curriculum and, and knowledge. I went to China, spent you know, private with Roger. I would, you know, I trained with uh, Master Pedro Sauer. I went to Higson Seminar to Holland for two, three days to go and train to learn hate kicks basics, which he taught a really good seminar. I controlled and Higson Racing on my back, asking me to escape. Mm. You know what I mean? And mm. which he said was wrong. It's <laughs> 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 true. Uh, he was on my back. He said, so we're having a So I said, okay, wrong. Then he went to the next guy. You know, so. Then he showed how to do it properly. He said, oh, okay, okay. But the point I'm making is I realized I did not know how to do things. So I decided I need to go and learn and pay money and go and train with people who are going to teach me. Mm -hmm. um, maybe five years ago, I could work out the exact thing, but maybe five years ago, um, Master Silvio Bering was here. Mm -hmm. He taught a couple of seminars, one for David Webb in Tucon Academy. I went to that seminar. Mm -hmm. And this man taught gold dust. Gold dust, right? And I said, 
at the end of the seminar, I mean, I learned some real good stuff. And I said to him, I said, you know, I said, Mestre, because, man, I treat, I call these people by their titles because I'll treat you, I'm an old school martial artist, so I'll treat you with respect. Mm. You know, I don't call any of these guys by their first name. That's me, right? Because I'll give you that respect. And I said, is it possible to do a private class with you? Why should you? He said, yeah, no problem. I said, how much? He said, 200 pounds. I said, okay. Now, was it a case if I had 200 pounds of burn? I could afford it, but I took the view, this guy's eighth degree black belt, he's gonna know stuff and I need to learn. Yeah. So I went, met him at Roger Gracie Academy and I did mm -hmm. two hours private with this guy. And he showed me how to choke from the mouth, how to choke from the guard, and a couple of other bits and pieces. And let me tell you the detail that that guy showed me. I've been rinsing people's ne necks ever since. With the detail, <laughs> with the detail. To the, extent, to the extent that I went to a seminar, no, seriously, I went to a seminar in Canada. Real guys over there, I really like them. And I, there were eight black belts on the map. And I went in their guards and I asked all of them, choke me, choke me. I won't defend, I'll just hold my neck up. And none of them choked me. In fact, the only one that choked me was the last one because my neck was hurting by the time we got to <laughs> right? Then I put them all in my guard and choked them out, like that. Mm. But that's because I knew what to do because I'd been taught, yeah. right? But my, point, but my point was, and this is my point, Right. People need to be honest with themselves, right? You have to ask, you ask yourself, not what you can do, what you cannot do. If you're in the mouth and you cannot keep the person there, you've got a problem. If you're in the back mm -hmm. and you cannot finish them, you'll self-defend. But if you don't know what to do, you have a problem. If you're in guard and the last time you got an armbar on someone was 1962, you've got a problem. You understand what I'm saying? And it's those things that have driven me to focus on that have made me better. You know what I mean? Uh, make me want to continue to learn and improve my jiu-jitsu. And of course, yeah, I like to learn the latest moves. I try to keep abreast of what's going on and so on and so forth. But I just feel that for me, and, and, and the relevance now is because think if, if you're one of these teachers who might be missing, who, who was like me at one point and couldn't do these, what the hell are you teaching your students then? If you can't choke from the mouth, do you think your students can do it? Of course not. If you can't keep the back, do you think they can do it? Of course they can't do it. It's impossible. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how many competitions you win. That's great. That's another mm -hmm. aspect. That's another thing mm -hmm. of it. That's another aspect. And so um, that, to me, that's why I say that, that there are a lot of teachers out there who, who can't teach because they don't know. And there are a lot of students out there who are not good students because they don't, they're, they're not active in their learning, right? Yeah. Active. You've yeah. got to ask yourself, mm. you know, you need the student who's going to come to you and say, oh, professor, or whatever they want to call you, how do you do this? Not, oh, can you show me Berimbolo? No, then he said, every time I get to this position, I've got the ex choking, but I could never choke him. What am I doing wrong? How many times did you get asked that question? No one can get asked that question. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's incumbent on the teacher and the student 
and, and, and I and I and I see sometimes why you know people like Hickson will say, oh my God, you know, you, you, you. I mean, you know, I'm not saying I side with everything he says. Great guy, you know, he, his, his history is, gives him the ability, you know, to say what he wants to say because he was, you know, according to what they say, the dumb of the dumbs, right? The man walked the walked the walk. Um, but it's true. Why are we looking for all these flash stuff and then, you know, we can't do our basic? But that's just my view, anyway. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 interesting because um, I'm you know I'm of a similar view as well. I also believe that um, you know creativity plays a massive part of it because you and and also allowing yourself not to be in that strong position because then it it really hammers home like you know you the questions that you need to ask about your technique. But I think I think that's general generally in life anyway. You know, so the more that you can actually kind of like experiment and be creative and put yourselves in in the positions that will allow you know you to ask questions of yourself is the more that you will tap into that search of knowledge the whole time you know and not make yourself comfortable and not you know always always question your your you know the bits of of your technique that's not right for you and be be comfortable with that with that thought or with that uh, questioning process so to speak you know it's like shit my mouth's not good he keeps doing this. Why does he keep doing this? Bang! Oh God! Da-da-da. Get me that again. Get me that again. Okay, dude. Have you got an answer for this? You know, always, always. And it's brilliant. I think that's why I love yeah, jujitsu because you can always do that. But you recall. I mean, you you would never mention this because you're that kind of humble guy. But you will recall that when I've had what I call jujitsu problems in the past, I've rang and said, "Dude, man, I got an issue with." Particularly, remember I tell you, I had this particular issue with guard defense. People passing my guard, they were sudden, and I couldn't work it out. And I said, "Dude, man, can I come see you?" And it's you know, and I came, and you. I plead the fifth. It never happened. <laughs> and you spent time, and you showed me what you thought was important to fix that part of my game, which did fix that part of my game, right? But the point I'm making is like, it's, it's, I'm not. Looking any crazy, the point I'm making is, I needed a solution to this problem, and I had to find it. So you start now have to use your database of knowledge as to who you can get access to. You want someone up there? And who? Yeah. And it was like, I'm yeah, going to yeah, see yeah. you. You would help me fix my game, and you did. So it's like, and and you know maybe I might have figured it out, maybe, or maybe not. But if I didn't mm. realize there was a problem and then take action on that problem, right? Yeah. And I didn't and I didn't give two monkeys about what it looked like. What do I mean by that? Is it, again, Viking, you remember because there were times I came to the academy to learn and you were there, right? And I'm learning, okay, and I graduated, you know, long before you, but I'm there and you're doing stuff I didn't know. And you we're rolling and you're doing stuff for me I didn't know. But I'm not walking away thinking, oh word. I look really bad because I'm supposed to. I don't care about that because I came to learn. Do you see what I mean? Mm. And if you come to learn, then you will learn and then you will develop. But, and that's where I suppose sometimes ego get, it gets in the way a little bit. You know what I mean? I think it's a two-way street, these things. You, uh, the, the way you are as an instructor will also attract those kind of students. Like I have a student here, Oleg, which um, Jude also knows. He's a very, very keen learner, and he would challenge 
in a good way, everything I say or, or teach. Um, and he's also a very, he's a very strong Russian guy. Yeah, there's, there's, he, he reminds me of, um, is it Dr. Timothy Leary? When he goes, uh, question authority, always question, always question. O Oleg's one of those guys who's like, he'll always question, he'll always question something. And I remember, um, when I was, was it the last time? No, the first time I went to Hong Kong and you asked me, a Viking goes to me, he goes, you, you, you're, you know, I don't, I can't remember your exact words, but it was more to the point of like, you know, I hope, listen, I hope Oleg's not being rude. And I was like, no, no, this is good. Because it's like, I'm showing him something, but it's like, yeah, he keeps asking me, ask, but it's not, it's not silly questions. It's not questions coming from somebody who's just like a white belt who, you know, no disrespect to white belts, but, you know, somebody's not coming from a, a jiu-jitsu knowledge base. It's coming from, it's coming from a knowledge base where he's asking the questions of like, yeah, but what about this? And, and this isn't working for me. Well, what about this? And this isn't working for me. Da, 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 da. And I was like, it was like, bah, 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 bah. I was like, I was laughing because it's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's good because for me, it's, it was a like, it's a nice little challenge as well because then it's like, okay, but if you try this to that and that and then do this and this and it's, it's good and it's good to see him because he's one of those people who will, you show it to him and then they go and try it straight away. It's like, fuck. And then it'll work and it's just I agree. like. <laughs> I agree. Oh, in inverted commas, instructor. Any system. Mm. I've ever trained with. After having spent some time with them, they all have one thing in common. One thing. They never tell you, but they love it when you ask them questions. Mm. They, they love it. And then they'll say, oh, ask me, ask me, ask me. Tell, tell, what do you want to ask me? Because now it gives them the chance to creatively express themselves. You know what I mean? You ask them a question yeah. and then they tell you and then boom, you go. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 mm. and I don't think people ask enough questions, but there's, and, and again, I, 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 I say this, there's the type of questions that you ask, right? Because mm. again, uh, there, are, there are some real dumbass questions. You know what I mean? There are some, some people ask just for the sake of asking. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, and, don't, and then there are obviously there's kind of questions where there's, there's no thought. But I don't know any half-decent teacher who would be upset if you said to him, Professor, every, even if, in my words, every time I get to this particular position, when I'm in here, I, I get out, or I can't finish it, what am I doing wrong? Bing! It's like you just gave them money. Oh, come on. Yeah. Then they'll fix your problem, right? But if you say, I can't armbar anyone, then, okay, what's your training? What do you, you know what I mean? What are you doing? What are you, you know? And, yeah. and, and so I, I have a few kind of like uh, phrases that I use, right? And one mm -hmm. of them is, or quotes that I made up, but one of them is, um, it's important to, have a good teacher, but it's more important to be a good student. That's one of them, because I believe that you can still have a bad teacher and still improve if you're a good student because you know how to learn and how to look for the knowledge, right? And then the second one I use, which is kind of slightly different, but it's this. My job as a teacher is to ensure that my students become better than me. 
And my job as a student is to make sure that it never happens. So, yeah. you know, so the two things working at the same time, I will show my students exactly what I'm doing. This is what you need to do to do this, 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 and this. And then when I'm the student phase, I'm never going to let you do because I'm trying to be better, but I'm teaching you to be me. I'm teaching you to improve and so on. So passing on the knowledge. And I think that that keeps that, because a lot of people say, oh, I'm still a student, but they're just words. You're not really a student. You're just saying mm -hmm. you're a student, but you're not really. You know what I mean? You're not really. You know, I, I, Live the student life. <laughs> you know. Um, actually, I wanted to ask something, actually, kind of like um, generally, but or, or both of you. Um, it's kind of a question to kind of comment, but John Danaher, right? What do you guys think, for you personally, of his teaching style? You know, how does that resonate with you, for example? Just, you know, his teaching style, you know, like, does it work for you or does it not work for you? I'm not asking if it's good or not. We all know well, he's a cheat, but... I mean... Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I think, um, I think, I think, apart from... I think a lot of the reasons why students gravitate towards certain teachers is because that particular style works for them. So for instance, like students in school will gravitate towards a history teacher because their personalities, you know, coincide. They, 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 they have that, you know, that, that teacher themselves kind of brings out that personality in them. And then some other teachers won't, some other students won't gravitate towards that, that particular teacher because you know they can't relate to them on this the backgrounds might be different etc you know it, it and i think i think when it comes to uh I, I think it's more than teaching style i think it's more because you can look at i can look at something um like you know something that john danner has teaching or any other teachers that's teaching and see it from a technical stance standpoint um and being like the experience that you know we all have we we can take that for what it is and not be affected by his personality or ex, ex, etc you know um so it's it's very it's very very different because we have seen it from a different standpoint but if you are like a, a new kind of student to jiu-jitsu and say like key or anybody else was your teacher a lot of the interactions and the personality traits will absolutely have more of a uh an effect on how you learn in the beginning, you know, than than just like being being able to see it from a from a high standpoint. So I think the the it's, it's the question. <laughs> I, th I think it's it's a lot. I think it's a lot oh, more yeah, bigger than, than just yeah yeah. It's a lot more bi bigger than just that. And I think also if you look at you know his his top guys, they all kind of all have a kind of similar personality as well. You know, so that I think that has a lot to a lot to do with it, um, and yeah, you, you know, like for instance, it's like a, a, a prime example would be like when the Viking was around when I was teaching and stuff like that. Um, man, you know, I think what was it fifty percent, forty, fifty percent of the academy were Asians from Hong Kong. You know, because I know Viking was there as one of my black belts teaching on the mat. You know, and so he was able to have a relationship with, you know. <laughs> The guys from you know the guys from Asia so it's it's 
it's a big part to play, you know, not just the technical aspect, but also the personality aspect, you know, because I think as instructors, you don't want to teach somebody as an arsehole. You don't want somebody on your mat as an arsehole, you know, even though they might be paying the bills, but you don't want them on the mat. So the likelihood of that person staying around mm, is not going to really work. So, but that person might work in another gym, you know. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's a, it's it's a lot. The the question is a lot more broader than just just this technical aspect, you know. For me, it's like, oh man, God, mate, it's like that. It's like a bit long winded. That I used to have, but I can. Yeah, but I can I can take all that away because you know he's you know and to see the essence of what he's teaching, and say all oh, right, oh cool, oh awesome, oh that's brilliant, and, and just take those aspects from it and not be affected by his personality, his background, and anything like that because it doesn't affect me on a on a day to day or direct basis. What about you, Mike? I agree with the personality aspect. Um, I've never been to one of his or taken one of his classes, so I can't really say. Uh, I've seen some instructionals, but again, they're they're tiny bit long-winded for for my personal taste. Um, I, I identified that I learned through feeling for a long time ago, so I learned a lot through Jude because Jude would just do all that stuff on me. So I don't really need that much of a a, a technical breakdown in order to learn that specific thing. Um, and we're also quite, some people I would say they, they enjoy more creative flow. Some people would need more structure. Some people might react more to sounds, some to looks. So it's, it's, all, it's all different, I would say. But uh, he's got, I would say he's got the technical explanation down to a T which is good for a lot of people who aren't there and they can take the time to read or, or, or listen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the reason, one of the reasons why I asked is, you see, look, again, as a martial artist, because that's what I am, that's what I consider myself to be first and foremost. When I've looked at the history of martial arts, but also at the, the history of elite sports people, right? right I'm not going to quote percentages because there's no study, no study has been done, but I'm going to say that 90%, as high as 90% of these elite sports people are highly uh, intellectual people. Um, there is a difference, obviously, between being intellectual and being educated, right? Because you don't have to... Education is just a system of learning, right? That's what education is. I practice school education, I have this in It's a system of learning. And the, the most important thing about education is not really exactly what you learn, this is all my opinion, it's the fact that you learned how to learn. You understand? That's what education teaches you, how to learn. But who wants to learn music or this or, or drama? But when you study, you knew you had to get the books, do the research, right? And then you found the way to learn. 
some people when they wrote it down, it got committed to their memory. Like we said, you know, some people they're visual learning, blah blah blah. So education. Yeah. So so when you look at guys like you know Bruce Lee, man, look at what his writings, his books, his pictures. Highly inter intellectual guy, studying, studying. Guru Dan in the center is the same. Mike Tyson, man, listen, that guy used to sit down with Customato, watching all the videos, watching fight stuff. Do you know what I mean? He, you know, studied the art of boxing. He wasn't just a boxer. He studied the art of boxing. And so, to me, the mind is the mind is. I know it's an obvious point, but the mind is, is so is so powerful. So when I so, so obviously, depending on who you are, of course, you will then resonate with, like we said, who teaches. So, like with John Danaher, I, I find, I've, you know, I've watched a few of his instructionals and stuff like that, and I find that even for me, he's like an uber intellectual. Do you know what I mean? He's like, you know, he he's, he's he is a bit OTT, and he knows he's OTT. But having said that. He's, I think he's, in terms of his ability to transmit information, he's amongst the best in the world. I've, I've learned a lot of stuff from watching. But a lot of people, mm -hmm. they'll switch off within 90 seconds because it's because of his voice and it's monotone. It's like, you know, but like you said, you've learned to filter out the monotone stuff. You know? mm -hmm. And then when you look at Gordon Ryan and, and, and uh, Gary Toner, when you listen to them, forget what they... When they speak, you can tell that they're educated in what they know. You understand what I mean by that? You know, he'll say, you know, I'll take the system, my back system, I'll do this, I'll move this here, I'll move blah, 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 blah. So they're kind of like mini, mini. And bear in mind that John Danaher, uh, was it psychology, uh, finishes. Yeah. Yeah, philosophy, philosophy. philosophy yeah. Yeah. So a history of study. And he said himself that one of the things, the major influences on his teaching was his learning from his philosophy teacher. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So um, so I, I, I just, I, but, but you know, when I, when I teach over the years of, so again, being a lawyer really helped me. It really helped me in my teaching because I had to prepare cases for court. I was a trial advocate, so I would go to court and cross-examine witnesses and read. You can't just go on a whim, you know. Imagine, you can't just go on a whim, oh, I'm just going to ask her what kind of underpants you got on, or what. You can't go on a whim. You've got to do your work, bro. But you know I mean? You had to read the papers. You had to anticipate the questions. You had to, you know, you, you really had to get into it. You had to study and learn. And, and then my competition, my competition, if you want to call it that, was in court. I'm in a trial, it's happening now. The witness is in the witness box. I'm asking you a question. That's my trial. That was the trial, literally. I mean, sorry, the trial was the equivalent of being a competitor. You're out there doing it in the heat of battle right there and then. So, so therefore, for me, I, I've always liked the intellectual approach. Uh, it doesn't mean that. I, so what's happened is many people have taught me stuff in a crude way. A crude way, and I've got the essence of what they've told me, and then I've got an intellectualized view, <laughs> if you want to call it that, yeah. and then put it into a form that I can teach the other students. Because otherwise, what happens is you know, you learn stuff, and it's stuff only you can do, but you can never pass it on. I just, but how'd you get outside control? I just, I don't know, but I just get, get out, you know? 
And then you kind of like, yeah. you know, kind of like you end up like with the Mario Sperry kind of thing. Uh, I don't know, one day you wake up and he's here. Oh, one day you wake up and I'm out. And, you know, <laughs> but yeah, you can't care. No, cool, man. It's interesting stuff. I just, no, I just like to know what people think generally about how they learn. Yeah. So at the academy, I teach in a combination of ways. Orally, obviously, I tell them. Mm. Visually, I show them. Touch, hands-on. Also, sometimes I'll, do, I'll give videos to the students so that they can see it in a different way. And also, I have a whiteboard without fail. Whiteboard. Mm. And I write on the board so they can see it. I tell them, take photographs. Because I know everybody learns in different ways. Everyone learns differently. Yeah. So I try to give a variety of stuff. That's cool, man. Well, listen, man, we are hitting with, well, we've hit our time. It's only supposed to be an hour. <laughs> it's only supposed to be an hour, man. Well, listen, just to, just to end, um, what we do is we do like a good vibe minute, you know, just a bit of advice from all our guests. Um, and anything, man, that comes to the top of your head that somebody who, you know, who you can mentor or whatever, any bit of advice, man, that you've got, you know, just one minute, man. Yeah. Just a, Keep us uh, well, you know, thank everybody for listening. If you're still here, not completely bored yet. I, I, I think we all come from different, you know, backgrounds and cultures and all that kind of stuff. All I would say to people, and I mean this hand and heart, is just try to be a good person. I mean, you know, what's good for one person is not necessarily good for another person. But you, you can't go wrong by trying to be a good person and trying to think of somebody else other than yourself. There's there are unfathomable amount of ways to help other people, you know, um, and that's all you need to do, you know, just try and help, you know, especially like now where so many people are struggling and it's been highlighted, even just a kind word, uh, arm on the shoulder, you know, if it's politically correct so that you don't get yourself in trouble, just try to be good. I know a good yeah. lawyer for that. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean it, just try to be good. Um, and, you know, it, it will make the world a better place. It's not, you know, it's not always about, I put this on my Instagram and I've got this slogan, I put this on my wall. It's not often about that, but it's often the unseen stuff, you know, that doesn't happen. And you just talk to that person who, you know, you haven't seen in a little while or you just made a little attention. Are you okay? Asked a question. You know, just honestly, I think the, the, the biggest advice I'd give to people just generally is just, you know, try to be good. And and the last thing I'd say is, and this is, I know this is a bit harder. This is harder. But if somebody needs help, you'd be surprised at the amount of people that would help you if you asked. So, and so for often, most people, that's the biggest fear is, I don't want to ask because I don't want to, they might say no, or I'm going to look weak or like an idiot. But, if you're struggling, if you just ask for help from someone, you'd be surprised at who will help you directly or indirectly. You'd be surprised. And that's probably the advice I would give to, to uh, the people. Help and don't be afraid to ask if you need I think I can get kicked out, they do. Yeah, no, it's there, yeah. It's there. Listen, my man, listen. David, thank you very much, brother. My pleasure, man. Obviously, yeah. it's been really good to catch yeah. up with you and stuff. Bye, kid. Absolutely. Thanks for staying up late in Hong Kong. And uh, we'll catch you guys on the mat soon, we hope, somewhere. Yeah, definitely, man. Listen, appreciate it, David, man. 
Thank you very Thank much, you. yeah? Okay. Cheers, brother. Love, love it.